Hi everyone, welcome to episode 47 of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. If this is your first time listening to the Inside View podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you go back to episode 1 and have a listen. Please do rate, review, tell your friends and family who may know about the podcast. It means a huge amount to us. We'd like to take this opportunity as well just to give a big shout out to our sponsors, GRG Sports and Vintry Harper Asset Management. Thank you very much guys for the continued support. It is now time to bring on this week's guest and I'm delighted and really excited to be joined by former All-Ireland winner with Armagh, Oshin McConville. He was a key member of the Archer County success in 2002 and was also a vital member of Cross Midland Rangers County, Provincial and All-Ireland dominance during the 90s and noughties. In the backdrop of all this, Oshin was actually struggling with a gambling addiction, something he overcame and is now an addiction counsellor helping others in similar situations. With six All-Ireland t- club titles, 16 Armagh club titles, 10 Ulster club titles, one All-Ireland senior football medal, two All-Stars, there's no doubt that Oshin really left a legacy behind him and will go down as one of the greatest footballers to have ever played the game. We definitely have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. Hi Oshin, welcome to the Inside View podcast. How are you keeping these days? Oh yeah, top class. I mean, it's been uh, it's been an absolutely like absolutely ridiculous year. I spent most of it uh, stuck in the house, uh, like a lot of other people. But uh, I suppose a sense of uh, how other people live. I mean, I would have spent the majority of my time on the road at football. I mean, like if it wasn't what the young ones would be with uh, club team managers, and obviously. I'm not fin- well. I'm finished playing a while, but um, so you sort of spend most of your time in the road, and then sort of you, you get an opportunity at home, uh, spend a bit of time with the family, and uh, and there hasn't been any fatalities yet, which is good, like you know. And have you found that like a big adjustment? You know, like you were kind of chatting there, you'd kind of rather a bit of both, really. Yeah, I think there's a there's a happy. I was on the road too much. I was away from home too much, and I don't think I'll ever go back to that. But um, you know, I think there is you know the opportunity for if there was the opportunity to to do little bits and pieces, you know, on the road. And I suppose look at it. It's any any parents out there will know that it's it's really tough. We have three kids, like, and as much as uh, you know, we love them and all that. We, we you know there is times where you just need a little bit of a break and that. That opportunity hasn't been there for a year, and you know what else? They need a break from us as much as we need a break from them. So, uh, yeah. So it's been it, it's being cooped up has been tough, but uh, we've got the opportunity to do things that you know we wouldn't normally you know have done. I mean, forced by uh, our forced by Ryan probably took twelve months before we were able to get the stabilizers off the bike. Whereas uh, with the young fella, with the other fella. Um, Connell, we, we, we did it in a couple of days because we were able to devote a lot of time to it and stuff, you know, and that I know that only sounds like simple things, but uh, we've probably seen more of the area that we live in and appreciate more of it now than than we would have walks and runs and bikes and all that sort of thing. 
from your work, do you know, in, in the, like you're obviously working in, in the mental health area now, um, we, we chatted there before we started recording. Um, have you found a big change and have you found like people are, are finding it extremely difficult? Uh, yeah, I think actually only in the last couple of months are we really seeing uh, the effects, a fairly gradual build up. And then all of a sudden, like it just seems to have exploded. And you know, we would find out with the teams that that we're that we're dealing with the young lads. Uh, we have a twenty four seven helpline, and and we would find you know the figures are 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 through the roof on that. Like you know, probably fifty percent up, maybe sixty percent up on what it was you know uh, for the same period last year. Um, and yeah, so I think I think uh, people are finding it difficult now. People are fatigued by uh, by it. I think, you know, people always talk about normality, but I suppose when people talk about normality, they talk about the fact that we're not used to being under such stringent regulations. We There is a bit of freedom to do your own thing. And a lot of the time, a lot of the time, like, like I find myself and my wife will be saying, you know, about... Uh, or we miss going out or we miss we might only go out twice a year but the fact we could do it and the opportunity was there and the babysitters were there and all those sort of things um, th- you know once you take away the options from people I think that mentally uh, that really uh, affects things and I think uh, that's the way it is with a lot of young people and look at uh, the, the majority of the people that I'm dealing with are sports people. A lot of them are elite sports people, professional sports people, and uh, they're probably finding it a little bit tougher than most. The pressures are uh, more defined um, than they've ever been because a lot of these lads, like especially when you consider soccer clubs in England, like a lot of these guys are uh, who were destined for certainly some sort of career may not have that now because financially the money's not there and uh you know the amount of kids that were going to be brought through that that same level won't be coming through and stuff like that so and then you, you get into the gaelic where you know we've been stripped of of all activity you know um and and not not only from a from a physical and mental point of view but also from a frustration point of view and from a point of view that um, we got a roadmap in the north uh, a number of weeks ago when I said that we'd be allowed back on the 12th of April. And at the time, the 12th of April was almost four weeks away. And it, that didn't matter, but it gave people a sense of hope and it gives people sort some sort of direction and something to walk towards um, and give people a big lift. And unfortunately, you know, those... Uh, those little states of positivity have been fewer and far between and and like I think we've been, I do still think we've been let down badly you know as far as you know uh, getting people outdoors and getting them able to, to interact with each other in place not even about competitive games to be honest it's more about getting together and, and having the opportunity to, to, to mix and socialise and whatever you know What's your feeling on the, the club scene this year? Do you think will do you think it'll be played first of all, which I, I imagine it will be, but what's your feeling on it? Well, I, I personally speaking, like I think 
uh, all GA should have been back already. Uh, I think, you know, we haven't been represented well enough at the top. Um, you know, we at government level, we were told we weren't elite anymore and we sort of more or less sat back and accepted it. And I don't think that should have been the case. I think we should have been fighting our corner a little bit harder. And I suppose the next part of uh, the next part of that is that when when we get back to action, clubs clubs should be back immediately, um, and clubs should should take precedence over everything else that's going on. Uh, juvenile, whether that be juveniles or whether that be senior teams, because I think the most important thing is at this stage is to get as many bodies back in the pitch as we possibly can. And again. If that for now is whether that be localized games or whether that be just training or like when we go back, we're going back pods of 15 and uh, non-contact and it doesn't matter. It's something. Do you know what I mean? It's it's something and it'll it'll give us the opportunity to get a lot of people out of the house who haven't had that opportunity and uh, and a lot of people who have who've gone down, I suppose, the wrong path during that, the past 12 months to get them out and get them into a different environment. Yeah, that's the thing. It's, 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 um, it seems as if the GA just kind of accepted it. You know, we we'll say this uh, on this side of the new year compared to last year, we were elite, um, which doesn't really make sense. You know, why didn't they, they fight the corner? Because I think that, like you said, the effects are going to be much worse. Even with kids, like you alluded to there, just to get kids out and about and meet and, you know, a bit of exercise. Yeah, and I think, you you know, you're 100% right. You haven't been well enough represented. And and I feel, I would feel as a parent as if I've, I watch my kids and, and uh, the same question appears every single week. When are we going back? You know, my kids are only six and eight. You know what I mean? And, and like, I, I understand that's not the most vulnerable uh, cohort of people. Like, I understand, you know, as they get older, it's, it's even more uh, magnified for them. But for, for me, I mean, I, as I say, I just feel as if I've let my kids down because I haven't fought hard enough to, to get them back in the pitch. And not just my kids, but, but their friends and, and, the, and the kids at, at those ages. So... Um, that just leaves people. I think that leaves people even further frustrated. I mean, people. A lot of people have lost jobs. You know, financially, are not in a in a in a great place. Um, and obviously, then you take away the the fact that you know we haven't been able to mix. We haven't been able to socialize. Um, and uh, you know, you you wonder, you know. What is the knock-on effect to all this? And I think, uh, as you, as I said earlier on, we're sort of starting to see that already. And before we go any further, um, you kind of alluded to there that you you probably have seen there in the professional um, scene that the pressure is probably getting to the players because a lot of them might be coming towards the end of their contract and they might be getting the opportunity to, you know, show the management what they're made of um, and. Have you seen that yet? Have you seen stuff like that? Well, I think, you know, when, when this is the time of year now where contracts are started to, especially uh, lads who are coming from uh, from under 18s or under 23s, this is the time of year where they are offered the contracts. But because of the uncertainty of money, etc., uh, that's just not happening at the minute. And uh, and that's that is that leaves people very vulnerable as well. Be, be, young lads get very tense, nervous, and and apprehensive over it, and and that only 
uh, you know, that just leaves to fall or anxiety, throw that anxiety on top of what of the year they've already had. Uh, so, yeah, so the big thing is for clubs making decisions and it's not easy for clubs either because they don't know what the budget's going to be for next year or anything else. So, you know, the, the, the knock-on effect is, is, is very visible right now on the fact that, you know, we can't even get Amy to make a decision. We'll, uh, we'll delve into the early days and just kind of give an insight into your, your childhood um, and how, you know, I suppose how, where you grew up really, um, you know, set the path going forward and really, you know, made you who you are, um, you know, passionate about the GA. Do you want to kind of give us an insight into that? And did you come from a GA dominant family? Yeah, no, I think the, the, uh, there was no escape in the GA for me. Uh, my mum, my dad, uh, I was the youngest in the family. All my brothers, sisters were involved in some way. My mother was, for the, for a long time, she was the only female secretary in the in the country. I think she's one of the first female secretaries as well at, uh, of any club. And um, she was instrumental in a lot of the things that I did. Obviously, uh, a very valid taxi service as well in the middle of it all. And uh, my f- my family were just steeped in it, and uh, they loved it. And I suppose that's why that was one of the reasons why you know I ended up uh, making it such a massive part of my life. Um, the area that I grew up in, like when I was growing up, I was born in nineteen seventy five. Like and 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 the north and the area that I grew up in was dominated by the troubles. Uh, the army had uh, uh, the army had a, an army, uh, the British army had an army barracks uh, right in the middle of the town, um, and that backed on onto the pitch. Uh, it was the best way I could describe it is that it was. It seemed like um, it dominated the landscape at that time. And uh, it overlooked and overshadowed everything that we'd done. And um, the troubles were in the height, you know, 70s, 80s. Um, and, you know, it wasn't uncommon to see, you know, but like literally every time a bomb went off, we lived just on the edge of the town. And every time a bomb went off, you know, windows would be shattered. And uh, it'd be broken to come in around you. You could be eating your dinner. You could be doing anything. Um, and what we done was we swept up the glass. We rang the laser, and he came and put in new windows. And I always, I've all, I've thought about it a lot since. I didn't think of anything of it at the time, but um, that was just automatic. We did that automatically. We didn't think about it. We didn't think about. Uh, you know, a bomb went off, and honestly, like you know, you, you would blink, but that would be the height of it. You know, you you just you sort of get on, you just sort of get on with things. Uh, the the harassment, you know, going to train and stuff was was very very real. Uh, um, not just in in cross in the area that I grew up in, but um, you know, going down my train. We actually used to train in Lorgan, which was far south of the county, which was complete madness because. You know, we had to travel, uh, I suppose, an hour, an hour and 10 minutes to get there. And, like, literally, you could be stopped. You could be stopped five times in the way. Uh, and when they stopped you, 
you know, it was that going back to the to the old days, they would throw the bag, whatever gear was on, the luxury of bags and the boot, they throw the gear on the ground. There might be five bags, there might be five lads traveling together, and all the gear would be just laying on the road in darkness, you know, and you you have to go through and you have to pick it up, you throw it in the thing, and that might happen you four times before you even get to training. Um, but also just the harassment of just walking to training, you know, um, then you get there and like no, we didn't do it deliberately, but balls. You a lot of the footballs used to go into the, you know, uh, kick them over the bar and bounce into the barracks or whatever. You know, stick a knife in them and throw them back out. And uh, you know, the, the helicopters, you know, would, would land on the pitch on a regular basis. And uh, yeah, it was just it was pretty incessant. Uh, it was the harassment was was pretty incessant, and it was pretty. I suppose the one thing, as I say. Everything in the town seemed to be overshadowed by what was going on with the barracks and the British Army and all those things, and and uh, and so something had to happen, and I think it had to happen from a sporting point of view in order to really change that. And when we started to be successful, um, especially when we went, we went to 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 what we. We won a first All Ireland club in '97, uh, and things sort of changed almost overnight. It gave us more of a sense of who we were. Give us a sense of achievement. Uh, when we come back that day, it, it didn't feel as if it was overshadowed by the barracks. It felt it was overshadowed by the pe- people and the, the unbelievable numbers of people that were there. I mean, they weren't all from Cross because you know there was there was thousands and thousands of people um, and sort of a, a renewed appreciation and then when they realised we weren't just a flash in the pan uh, the whole the whole atmosphere around the town just changed you know the, the whole like just things things just seem to start to happen you know not I guess it may sound ridiculous but even from like um, prosperity point of view like as far as you know businesses and uh, the way the place looked and uh, the way people were taking a lot more pride in, in, in the area and all that sort of thing and and that just has those Apple efforts just have been doubled as, as time has gone on but uh, that was the that was a major change for the area that I lived in and you, you touched on there at the harassment like would they would they just kind of make things on un- Awkward free or or cause hassle free or would they actually physically lay their hands on you? Uh, look at physically if they could get at you, they 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 get at you. But uh, mainly it was when I talk about harassment, it was it was just a constant making it difficult for us to do anything to make ourselves a better team as far as the clubs, the pitches, uh, the damage that was done to the to the surrounding areas as far as um travel and 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 as I say just use to the pitches and um you know intimidation and you know bringing teams around uh to play challenge matches and different things nobody wanted to come across to play to play challenge matches in particular and then we had to travel and as a result of us having to travel we would you know face that harassment again as far as um as far as you know, being stopped and and you know checkpoints and all of those sorts of things. So, uh, it it just was pretty. It was incessant, if you know what I mean. It was incessant, and it was 
it was uh, I suppose when 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 it, when they did when when they were concentrating on on the harassment of us, we were in a way of feeling sorry for ourselves for a long time, as in you know how can we how could we achieve what we want to achieve when this is the a constant thing and and then Joe Kernan come in and and took him a couple of years but we eventually as that group together we changed it. And instead of using it as a crutch, we started to use it as something that we could like that siege mentality. And how somebody hadn't thought of it that a long time ago uh, beats me. But we once we started to use that, things as I say started to change, and and uh, the harassment didn't seem as bad, even though it, it was probably on the same level. But we just weren't as concentrated on that. We were more concentrated on what we had to do. And not making excuses as to why we couldn't do it, but instead making excuses of why we could do it. During we say, you know, like as not every J person did go to their local field, you know, and, and practice. Um, would you've experienced intimidation and harassment in those circumstances? You they come into the pitch and harass you? Uh, yeah, well, the, the helicopter, you know, they used to regularly land a helicopter on the pitch. Um, and you know when the, when the barracks is right beside they used to come out the back door of the barracks and, and they would walk straight through the pitch like you know so uh, you know the 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 level of, of intimidation again it was it was concentrated if you know what I mean and it seemed like you know once one thing had sort of died away that something else would happen and then as you get older you realise uh, there's certain groups of soldiers who are particularly nasty in comparison to others and we used to know that by the colour of the hats so we used to know uh, whatever berries they were wearing that there was one uh, crowd in particular who wore red berries and uh, you know they were particularly nasty and and you felt not you didn't just feel intimidated by them you, you felt actually in danger you know so uh, paratroopers you call them and and I say you didn't just feel uh, intimidated. You see, you felt endangered by those guys. I saw there was one of the doc, one of the I think the documentary there with the BBC that you got to meet um, one of those soldiers. Um, that must have been a difficult time for you, was it? Uh, I had I I had already I had sat on a, on a on a, a a small committee that had done on a little bit on conflict resolution and I had met this guy before. I never had the opportunity to really talk to him, but uh, I was interested to hear hear his story because um like he, at the time you 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 realize that a lot of these gays are as young, if not younger than you. This guy came to uh cross he was taken across with them when he was 18 years of age. You know, he was scared, frightened. He was getting uh, some serious uh, hassle even from his own side um, and what was going on inside the four walls of the barracks. And I was interested in all of that and uh, and I was interested in his take on what we were. And I suppose one thing he would have continuously said, look, as far as they were concerned, we were the sporting end of the IRA. And uh, that's the way they seen the GA, and that's the way where they were told to see it. But he soon realized after a while, he used to watch the games, he loved the games, and uh, he soon realized that we were just, you know, 
normal people in a normal community. Uh, the same way as he was, he grew up. His main sport was cricket, um, and same way as he grew up in his local uh, village or town. You know, watching going to watch cricket at the weekends. That's when people come out. They would come out to watch GEA because they were passionate about it, and just as passionate as he was about cricket, etc. So, uh, it gave me a realization that he was just a lad sent to do a job, and and uh, and he was like a lamb to the slaughter, I suppose, at eighteen years of age. You know, and and I like he would have said the one place that nobody wanted to go that time was Cross Midland because of the fatalities that have been there and because of the level of uh, of attacks there was around um, that area at that time. So the one area, the one place he didn't want to go to was Cross Midland and there he was. He was landed there, so it was a very frightening experience for him. Is that, um, is that barracks completely closed now? Because I know you can still kind of see it in the pitch. Yeah, no, the the barracks is, is condensed. There's no soldiers in it anymore, but there's a police barracks now. So, but like a police, there's no need for a police barracks to be to be that size. Like you know, but it's definitely condensed from from what it was. But uh, we would like to see it completely gone. But uh, we've we've been able to get some of our land back and stuff like that. And and obviously, there's no intimidation anymore. And the area that my kids are growing up in is a completely different place to the one that I grew up in thank God and and uh, it's just a much it's a much easier place to grow up and it's a much happier place you know Would you so you know when you started getting um, having success with you know it was especially in 97 when you won the All-Ireland but um, you know did that start change people's perception of Cross McGlynn because I suppose previously it was known as the place where the troubles were, or the term bandit, bandit country would, would have been yeah. thrown around. Um, did that kind of give you encouragement as well then going forward that we're not, we're much more than this? Yeah, well, as a local, uh, I, I attribute that that phrase to, uh, and the best phrase I've heard was to uh, uh, a local publican called, called uh, Paddy Short. And whenever something happened, troubles wise, they used to go into him for a sound bite or to, see what was going on and usually like where we lived his his windows were blown in and all that sort of thing and they would go in and have a look around and blah blah uh, do some shots and stuff from it but I remember him going in the morning after the All-Ireland and he said maybe from now on we'll, this place won't be known uh, for you know the troubles or the fact that it's banded country but all but more so for the for the uh, for the brilliant sports team we have and that was the start of the change of, of that. And then uh, I think as we got successful then, even more successful, uh, as I say, we weren't a flash in the pan. Um, people had more of an appreciation for that. And people hopefully now, you know, would associate Crossman Lane with, a, with the football rather than uh, what had gone on previous. Um, what, you know, what, what got you over the line in '97, and obviously, you know, it, it, it kind of kept you going. Then was it Joe Kernan? Did he have, did he bring in some new things? Uh, yeah, well, obviously, we had been successful in the first years, first three years that Joe was there, and I suppose we all had to take a look at ourselves, and 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 we did that sort of collectively, and uh, we were promising things for those first three years to each other that uh, we weren't, you know, we weren't following through on. And uh, and things changed 
we played Mullapan, who are local uh, rivals. We played them in 1995 and uh, in the AMAT Championship. And BBC had done a, a documentary on it called More Than a Game. And uh, we had been beaten and the uh, camera had gone into Mullaban uh, social club afterwards um, to talk to the players and they were having a good laugh at their expense and I suppose we promised that, that people were never going to be able to laugh at their expense again and yet we went played in the first round of the challenge we were playing a division 2 team and we we won by a point so it wasn't as if we were we were exactly turning things in its head but just but from that, then we just we started just to get better as a, as a team. We started to believe in what Joe was was giving us. We were uh, incredibly fit. Uh, one of the guys who uh, uh, Donald McKenna, he had gone over to watch uh, a couple of Spurs training sessions. He was obsessed with Spurs. Jerry Francis was over at Spurs at the time. He went over and he took home a a, a training. Uh, a training drill called Terrible Tuesdays, and that was basically just running. Um, and uh, we found out later, of course, that Spurs weren't doing the Terrible Tuesdays we were doing. We had a couple of layers on top of what they were doing, but uh, it got us incredibly fit. We did it most uh, Tuesday nights, and uh, we were just were in we were in pretty good shape. And that was probably borne out by the fact that a lot of times we wore teams down towards the end of the game. We won a lot of games by a point. We won a lot of games in the last five or ten minutes, and uh, that was down to our fitness. And then, you know, the second year Joe was there, he brought in, uh, or maybe the third year, he brought in um, John McCluskey, who was later to go on and, and help us win all there in 2002. Uh, but John uh, took, he had an Ulster rugby background, and he took, not just uh, the condition, not just the uh, uh, stamina and uh, the fact that we were pretty fit, but also the certain conditioning. And he gave us a bit of a leg up in that direction. And to be honest, uh, everybody sort of bought into it. No, not every sort of bought into it. Everybody bought into it. And uh, we took it and run with it. And that's how we, we, we kept, I suppose, we didn't reinvent things, but uh, we kept... Uh, being able to take it to to another level every year, as far as expertise, as far as nutrition or uh, psychology, or just adding little bits and pieces along the way. Before we go any further, um, I suppose just to create the picture, you know, was there other sports in and around Cross McGlynn? You know, when you were growing up, or was it just predominantly the GA? No, it wasn't predominantly. It was that was all it was. There's <laughs> a local soccer team, and and, uh, and they played in the Saturday, but nobody, well, so no, none of the Gaelic lads really play from the last maybe in the off season or something. Uh, but like it, it wasn't really hampering what we were trying to do. Um, a, a gay from Clare, a gay called. Joe Pelican had a had a had a pub and cross. He was married and living in cross, and he uh, started a, a hurling team, but it lasted merely a couple of months, and that was uh, that went by the wayside as well. And and then it was just 
it was just football. And funny thing is, is that like my kids would play uh, soccer and a lot of the young kids would play soccer maybe in Uri or the dock. My kids play in the dock and uh, and that's probably, you know, that's been introduced a little bit over just to give uh, kids more of an outlet and be, I suppose get them to be more rounded. But um, as far as the town goes, it's, it's still a Gaelic football predominantly. And employment-wise, um, what would be there? Because you know, some place, some towns need more tourism. Or, or what would be no? What would Cross be known for? Well, I suppose actually at that time, you know, the majority of people walked in Newry, Dundalk. You know, some guys were were traveling to Dublin. Uh, at that time, we had a, we had a good few guys who were you know um, on sites and stuff like that. So you know, a lot of you know, electricians, uh, plumbers, joiners. Um, so a lot of gays were walking outside of that. Be a lot of tradespeople in the area that we grew up in, but that would have changed and diversified since. And there'd be teach a lot of teachers and, and gays involved in IT and different things. So <clears throat> a pretty normal sort of sort of area. A little bit of tourism now. Uh, the things have are a lot quieter. Um, and um, and otherwise, you know, as far as cross is concerned, for people who don't know cross, uh, I think probably left. There's maybe seven or eight pubs in in, in cross, and uh, you know that's all more or less all centered around you know the square and cross, and just a very very small area. So um, that would sort of what cross would be known for, I suppose. People, a lot of tradespeople around here. Yeah, I think I suppose the biggest thing would be you know people would want to get an insight like how did you keep that winning culture year in year out you know because it's very easy to kind of get complacent you know when you're winning all the time especially with 30 odd lads try to keep everyone on the same wavelength yeah and then like we weren't we weren't using like we weren't using a panel in the same way as the panels would be used now i mean i think one year we won the all Ireland. maybe the first year we used 17 or 18 players you know, so um, you know, we there was a core there was a core group of us and yet the gays outside of that were so important to us because you know we played a lot of fifteen v fifteen and, and training and stuff and and uh, and those gays were, were so important to us and we had a good little thing going and we were able to keep them uh keep them around. I don't think they were always happy, you know, because when you're not playing you're not happy. Um, but they, they felt it valuable enough to stick around and, and that was invaluable to us. Um, how do we keep it going? Uh, a couple of different things. Um, <laughs> a gay called Ali McAtee was, was selected with us and we was a very famous trip where we went to Ballincollig and we played in a, in a tournament and it was... Uh, the day before St. Patrick's Day and St. Patrick's Day was the final. And uh, we went down there and we won that tournament and we were having a few drinks in the in the in the club afterwards. And it was I think it was four or six teams or something involved. And we were all in different corners of the um of the clubhouse in Ballincollig. And and I remember Ollie McEntee, who was, you know, six foot three or whatever, and and quite loud. And and when he uh he went up to the bar one stage and the All-Ireland Club final was on TV and he shouted down at us boys in the corner. He says, 
boys, that's what we're going to be next year. And I, I, we all sort of went, oh my god, because we were, we couldn't win a game. You know, we couldn't win a game in our man, and you know, um, and I could see other guys from other teams laughing, and uh, and twelve months later, that's exactly where we were. We were up in Crow Park picking up a, a, an All Ireland, and that was because we had. That weekend had sort of bonded us together. A few little different things that happened on the weekend, and uh, and we sort of found out a lot about each other. Um, and we we sort of started to to walk as a as a as a unit. Uh, and we were look, we we had brilliant, we were brilliant footballers, brilliant athletes, but we, and we were like an exceptionally big team, you know, uh, physically. <laughs> Physically, we were, we were extremely big. I mean, I was probably one of the smaller guys, and myself and Jim and Cal Short, maybe. But um, we were exceptionally big and exceptionally physical, and, and we had found a way to play, um, which involved a, a lot of time and uh, completely dominate the middle of the field with four big men across the middle, and uh, and we'd found, as I said, we'd found something that worked for us, and we just we'd taken that and we and we decided we we're going to run with it and. Uh, as I say, Ali McIntyre said that, and and there's not, nothing to putting like putting a bit of pressure on yourselves. But he was right. That's exactly where we were. And then when we got there and we got the taste of it, we loved it, uh, and we loved the journey we were on because we were enjoying it. You know, we were enjoying it. We were enjoying, uh, yeah, we were enjoying winning, but we were enjoying everything that that brought with us. Uh, you know, we after the first All Ireland, uh, well, not directly after, but uh, eight or nine months later, we were in Florida together and you know we 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 had those trips and we had those memories and and nobody can ever you know take those things away and and uh i suppose it's just a really enjoyable time to be playing football and uh we had as i say we just had a we had a good thing going and we just wanted to keep it going and, and uh, ollie mcintyre also said another thing he said by the time we're finished here lads i want us to be completely hated by everybody in the country and I remember, I remember, I remember thinking, you know, in Armagh, after winning three or four in a row, I said, you know, we seem to be well on our way to being hated, and uh, and and Ali said, you know, we we still have a good bit of work to do on in Ulster and, and around Ireland. So uh, that just sort of that was a little thing that we sort of we sort of kept going with, and uh, we we were dominating Armagh, yes, because we were better and more physical but also because that will to win just wasn't going anywhere it wasn't winning and you know people used to say to us all the time oh the team you're playing against whoever it was you know they'll be a lot hungrier than you this weekend and I always thought but you know they don't dictate that we can dictate that in our own change room doesn't matter just because we're winning doesn't mean that we can't that we have to uh, we have to be less hungry than they are or less motivated than they are so um, that was sort of the way we played it, and, and look at it didn't always go right for us. I mean, like we we lost, it, you know, even though we've an unbelievable record, we lost some some games that we, we never should have lost. But look at that's that's sport in general, and you just yeah have to accept some of that. But as I say, just the the times we had with uh, yeah, with all the groups that I won all Ireland with, but particularly that first one because we were just an uncharted territory. You know, and nobody was really expecting us. And look, when we won one, when we won a first one, like I remember, you know, my parents saying to me, you know, the day happy now and stuff like that. But uh, then they 
they wanted more as well and, and everybody wanted more and, and then it became sort of eventually it became almost that people expected it you know and having gone from that so little expectation to people expecting it you know as a football or on a football team that you've definitely come on a journey if people are starting to expect you to win all earns before you even kick a ball now because the club championship is such a difficult championship to win because of its you know because of just the, the time especially when you're going from uh, April right through to the following March so um, just the longevity of it and just to be able to keep that going was huge before we move any further, what, uh, what was terrible shoes as? Was it like long distance running, running around the pitch, or was it just short, uh, short bursts? Terrible, terrible shoes was 14 to 14, uh, end lane to end lane, uh, 21 to 21, end lane to end lane, and you might do 20 of them. Uh, and you're trying, to, you're trying to do them as quickly as you possibly can. Again, as I say, Ones the spores were doing, I think, were just the length of the soccer pitch twice uh, by ten or something. And uh, but we had we had extended it. But as I say, I know boys coming back from preseason who would have you know been carrying you know a bit of weight, haven't really enjoyed themselves for a couple of months. And uh, like honestly, just watching them, just watching them getting getting fit, the weight just absolutely dropping off them, and and them ready to go for a championship, like you know six or eight or. 10 weeks later, whatever it was, you know. So uh, there was something that's, that worked for us and everybody just sort of bought in. And then we hated them, but we we did them. And and that, you know, when people talk about, uh, you know, uh, pre-season bonding, there was no greater bonding session for us than actually walking hard together. And uh, when, when we were doing them, we were, you know, everybody was, was going through them, some slower than others, but... When everybody was going through them, uh, you know that was building the spirit in the team. Yeah, even on that point, we said that the guys that would have been, you know, a bit slower. You know, you're all on the one wavelength. You're all buying in together and encouraging each other. Yeah, and like it was different times as well. You know, like it, it, it was encouragement, yes, but it was encourage like. You, you didn't have to watch how you said it. You just yeah. said it, and that was it. And you know, uh, the what nobody was too precious of themselves. We just we said it as it was to each other, and, and we understood that that's just the way it was. Now, probably need to be a little bit more politically correct about it, or we more gentle about getting the point across. But at that time, it it didn't have to be. You didn't have to mince your words. It was just like if you weren't doing it, you were told, and that was it. You know, I remember. I remember doing the bleep test like uh, on several occasions, you know, and uh, like that was we were getting to levels that we that like we could only dream of getting getting to. But a lot of the time it was just <laughs> it was just to annoy the person beside you, you know. That's the way I just keep going and going and going and pretend it was you know there was nothing wrong with you. And we use that a lot during games as well. Is that you know whenever you're absolutely out in your feet that you don't show any of that, and we we never. If you watch back all the videos of us of us playing, you never seen anybody you know down the ground holding two hands behind our head, or you know we just and even though we were as I say out on our feet, we just we we tended not to show that you know. Um, what like during that campaign, like would you've been on a strict you know it's all about in the GNO, you've strict drinking ban, um, and watch what you eat. 
or you know were you always kind of given a bit of the, the cherry and enjoy yourself for a day or two but you're all training again yeah well we we enjoyed ourselves after after every championship match uh we'd enjoy ourselves uh, and then it'd be strict after that and and a lot of time you know as far as drinking bands and that's concerned we could be you know we could we could decide as a team that we needed a bit of a a bit of a, a bit of something extra and we might take you know we could take three months away from it or or different things like that like i i it wasn't a ha- like if you think about the way sports people and 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 uh how they interact with alcohol i mean it's not healthy because we we do tend to take a lot of time off it and then we go we seem to go mad and that's we were no different we sort of we were sort of the same when we were let off the leash we were off the leash you know how did I suppose you personally? How did you, you know, uh, look after your body, especially when you would have been, you know, playing at that standard, um, week in week out, and then you're playing with our man as well. You know, it's probably the, the the four protein shakes and all that. Um, it was never that was never a problem. I mean, I used to laugh when people talked about burnout and stuff, and I think you know myself and John Tony were the same because I think the difference for us was that we were playing games. You know, and we were preparing to play games. And even when we were coming back to Armagh, majority of the time, we probably miss a lot of the preseason. And you go into a game. I remember, you know, Brian McLean and I was coming back in after All-Ireland. Literally two weeks later, I was playing a game against Derry in the National League. And he said, listen, I'm thinking not of starting you because you're bound to be tired. And he said, like, how would I be tired? I haven't done anything in two weeks. Only... Uh, come down here and, and like when I went down there, I say that the the actual um, preseason and the tough stuff was that was all done. You know, so you you six all in club medals. Um, would I be right in saying that the the one that you won against the Kerry champions Crocs was the the sweetest of them all? Yeah, and I think I think it was for for probably for the main reason was that. I've had my struggles. I've gone through treatment for a gambling addiction. I come out. Um, I was made captain of the team, and I didn't think that was something I was ever going to be. Was captain, captain material, if you like. And um, and it felt like redemption after that game. If you know what I mean, it felt as if I'd sort of paid me paid me dues to. I suppose to society, the fact that you know being away, I'd done the treatment. I sort of, I was in a brilliant place in my own head. Um, I was really, I was enjoying my football more than I'd ever done. And the fact that now, on top of that, we we're successful, probably just probably the reason why we made it the most sweet. And it was a tough year that year. You know, we had some really tough games, and like we we could have been dead and buried in the in the all in the. In the first game that year, because we we are we are we are very very poor in the All Ireland finals, Patrick's Day, and lucky enough we got another opportunity to, to get at them. So because uh, I I think I might have had a few too many steps in the at the end of the replay, and I kicked the point, and we sort of got out of jail. Uh, a lot of every every time I go down to carry a Killarney in particular, there's usually some. Somebody who mentions those those steps those steps to me because I might have had maybe eleven or twelve steps, but um, yes, yeah, so that was the reason why that was the most sweetest. Just because from you know from a personal point of view, and 
And then we, again in the All Ireland replay, we played some played some very good stuff too. Do like. you see similarity between you know your crossing the inside um, over your your career and the current Dublin side? I suppose you both of you knew how to win. No, yeah, Dublin knows know how to win. I tell you the, the the similarity that I keep coming back to, and it's a very difficult one to explain to people. But um, when you're in the mode of winning, uh, it almost feels as if it's going to be very difficult to get beat. And when you're in that zone, it's an incredible place to be. And even if you think things aren't going well for you at all, um, you're still able to summon enough to as I say, just get you a replay that you're going to be better the next day or win by a point and you can improve in things. Uh, and then there's other days where it just clicks and you and you, you blow teams away, like, you know. So um, that's the similarities I see. And, and a lot of people, again, probably really don't understand that. Like when you say, listen, it's like people people sort of take a look at you when you say, look, it's, it's more difficult to, to lose here than, than, you know, and... When when you when you come out with a phrase like that, definitely people sort of question you. Well, you know what what are you talking about? But that's the similarity that I would see. See, and, and I haven't talked to one or two of the Dublin players. Uh, they would they would uh, feel a little bit of that. I think uh, one of the important things in the cross dressing room was that there was no egos. Um, I tried to take my ego in, and there's a few other boys tried to take their ego into that change room. On several occasions, but it just wasn't accepted. I remember uh, I was being sponsored by Puma uh, at the time, and they had sent me like six or seven pairs of boots, and three of them were white boots. And I, I, I understood like it was completely uh, there was nobody going to be allowed to wear white boots playing across. I understood that, but I thought at least I might be able to wear them at training. So I took them up to training one night, and I wore them. And when I come back. Uh, when I come back out of the shower, I ripped the shreds and put in the bin, and uh, and that was sort of that was sort of like that was a telltale sign about don't get above your station first and foremost. And you know we we have a sort of we have something and on a couple of unwritten rules in the change room, and you're not going to waver from that. And and so like there was <laughs> the there was no such thing as somebody going to be wearing the white boots or stepping out of lane or anything like that. Like, and that was just, that was the way the change room was run. And when I say run, we just run it ourselves. And it, look at the lads, look, you're not going to go through 10 years of playing at the top and not have a lad step out of lane here and there. When, they, when people did step out of lane, including myself, it was players who, it was players who looked after it and players who, who, who sorted it out. We sorted that out amongst ourselves. And, and that was a great thing about, about that team was, it was very manly, and I don't mean that. Uh, it was very manly in the fact that you were, as I said earlier, you were able to say things to people and know that they would be taken in the right way. You know, would you say that's kind of a bit of a problem nowadays um, that people take it? You know, it's supposed to PC generation we're we're living in. Uh, yeah, it's a bit of an issue. I also think though that there's more challenges for young lads now, and I think you just have to be more careful around it. But I do think that like honesty uh, without brutal honesty because there is a fine line uh, is definitely the way to go um, 
not just telling somebody something for the sake of it. Like I would be very much into, uh, you know, hoping that in every change room that I go into that there's that there be a huge amount of honesty, but uh, that we'd also be be um, reflective in, in how we speak to people and also uh, how you know what we say is going to affect that other person. But yeah, it was. If the, the best way I could put it was it's probably a lot simpler then. Uh whereas now it's it's it is that that little bit more difficult. How did Joe Kernan um put his stamp on the Arma you know setup that got you over the line in, in two thousand and two? Um professional. Just like when when uh Joe took over, it just you walked in the first night and you knew things had changed. Uh, you you looked out on the pitch and the, and the session was 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 set out. Uh, we had two physios, masseur um, masseuses, um, is it masseuses or masseuse? Anyway, there was people people there to give you a rub anyway. And uh, then there was food after training. Obviously, John McCluskey was in doing the uh, the physical end of training. We had, had you know Paul Grimley was there and then Joe was there and. You know, uh, we had, we just had a, it was just like a, it was very much like a professional uh, type scenario and just everything around it felt like as if it was professional, you know. Was that professional professionalism hit another level when you, you went to La Manga, was it La Manga in 2006? Yeah. Yeah, and people again, like this is literally what happened. We we, we were driving in the bus and, and Real Madrid were, were driving out. And when we went in, like uh we had the exact same we we ate the exact we ate the exact same food as we had the exact same menu as what they had, you know, selection of whatever at lunchtime and dinner time and breakfast time and, and uh we stayed in the same accommodation. We used the same pitches. Uh, Dave Alred was there. He was there. He was kicking coach with Johnny Wilkins at the time, and he did a uh, bit with free takers. And uh, we did the video stuff, and we were able to watch it back in the evenings. And we watched back different training sessions. We used the gym. We and like we went on that trip the same way as every other Gaelic footballer at that time went on. We we packed the jeans and a, and a nice shirt just in case there might be a night out. But there was those those jeans and shirt never made it out of the bag because. As I say, we train twice, three times a day, and honestly, we we come home and I think we took we took three days off, maybe even four. And I remember going back to the training session on the on uh, the first training session after we came home from the manga, and just feeling like I've never felt like this before. I've never felt so good, like, you know. And uh, you know, because the we were rested after coming home, and and but the training was in the legs, and obviously the altitude and all those things, and. Like it was definitely stood to us as that year went on. It probably was for a lot of people. It probably wasn't immediately obvious uh, when we when we uh, when we played Toronto in the first round of the championship. But uh, it definitely came out to play as 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 things went on. You know. Um, I don't know. I kind of, kind of skipped over, but that that uh, success in two thousand two got over the line. B Kerry, but what does Bill McGarry uh, mean to you? And it's something that's going on in the back of your mind during that game. Well, Bill McCurry was a gay who missed the penalty in 1953, and 
uh, it had been talked about at his funeral and and I, I just could never get my head around that that, that could follow you around for that long. Uh, Armad played in three All Ireland two that was the third All Ireland final that Armad played in and missed a penalty in fifty three, one in seventy seven and I missed one two thousand two. So I was keeping up the record anyhow. But uh <clears throat> look at it, it was it was just a lonely place to be in Crow Park having missed a penalty thinking you know, Kerry going to kick on and win the game and, and, and I'll be remembered for missing the penalty in All-Ireland final. So uh, I was lucky. I was so lucky we were able to turn that around. But uh, that was my immediate thoughts, believe it or not. Nobody believed that again, but, you know, your immediate thoughts would be just something like that. But it was because I had grown up with that. My uncle played on that team and it was something, you know, my mum and dad were at the game and something that had been mentioned for years and years. So, uh, you know, it was very, very... Uh, it was front and centre as far as you know my mind was concerned during all of this time um, there was something else going on in your outside life how like how I, I actually had Shane Carty on a couple of weeks ago um, he, he, he spoke about how he suffered from you know depression but he effectively wore a mask a poker face he described it as I just found it crazy how you know it didn't affect your your game or, or did it? Yeah, well, I think there's two arguments on that side, I suppose. Like, I would have said that I wasn't doing as much as what the other guys were doing as far as preparation and gym and all those sort of things were concerned. Uh, so I think it did affect my game. Um, uh, but I was still playing at quite a high level. And uh, I suppose the reason why maybe I was playing at quite a high level was that this sounds ridiculous and may sound even dramatic, but at that time, football was the thing that was keeping me alive. It sort of was the one thing that made sort of sense in my life. It was the one thing that gave me some sort of sense of direction. Um, and it gave me a purpose, fulfillment, all those sort of things. And, um, and so therefore it was more important than, well, you know how well I, you know how well I was playing or whatever, but just like like Shane, I've heard him talking. He's he's brilliant. Um, I've heard him talk in the past, and it makes you know like a lot of the his actions and a lot of my actions, um, as far as disguising things would be concerned, would be quite similar. Uh, like in nineteen ninety nine, like. You remember a gay called Eric Cantona who played with who played with Leeds and went on to play at Man United and he wore his collar up. Well, in 1989, I wore my collar up as well. And the reason why I wore my collar up was because I wanted I wanted people to think oh, I, this is gay, he's confident, he's arrogant, he's cocky, he's whatever. I didn't really care. But I wanted them to, to look at me and go, you know, this gay got a, some sort of air about him. Whereas in actual fact, behind the scenes, like the insecurities were huge for me, huge. And they had continued on from, I was 11 and 12 years of age and I never dealt with them. And I started gambling at 14 and that just exacerbated everything. Uh, and so in, in 89, I was, my father was battling cancer in, in, in hospital, he died. Um, uh, shortly after we'd been beaten in all Ireland, on the weddings, actually, after we were beaten in the All-Ireland semi-final, um, I, I was, my head was nowhere near where it should have been for that game. 
so it did affect me in those ways. Um, and it was, it was look, gambling was starting to affect everything in my life, but I didn't want to show that. And that's why, hence the collar up or the, or the ways of masking it or walking into change rooms. Like I, when I talk to professional sports people, I talk about the different characters are in the, in the change room. And I would have been probably one of the jokers in the change room because again, I wanted people to think, look at this guy, he's got it all sorted out. You know, he's, ha- he's happy with life. He's blah, blah, blah. And he's got all the trappings of, of an inter-county footballer and all that sort of thing, whereas in actual fact, my life was a mess. And, uh, and I really didn't want people to see that. Uh, so I, I, I worked very, very hard on uh, disguise and all those things, you know? Did you realise or come to terms with the magnitude of um, what was going on, you know, with, with, with the gambling at all during those those fifteen years until you know until you 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 had to kind of face it. There's probably a few false dawns, probably a few times where I thought, um, I I really need to sort this out. But they were always short term. If you can imagine, like I go in and lose a lot of money, maybe relationships breaking down, friendships breaking down, family members maybe, you know, not happy with me, disowning me, you know, things not going well work-wise or, or, or if I even had a job. And, uh, and, and, and all of those things were starting to be affected. And then it was affecting my sport. And it was affecting all facets of my life. And of course, you know, I looked at it and I thought, you know, the one common denominator here is the fact that, you know, I'm losing money every week and uh, I'm obsessed with trying to have that one big win to sort sort out all my problems. Uh, I, I I was in denial for a lot of years, but once I, once I realized that I had a problem at 26 or 27, uh, the next thing was actually have to deal with it. And that for me was the most difficult part. So the next three or four years fighting with myself, uh, you know, wondering, you know, what the solution is. Um, that was tough. That, that was, that was a tough period of my life. And I would like, you know, I had the suicidal thoughts and, and, and thoughts of if uh, people would be better off without me. And I wasn't talking to anybody and all of my talk was self-talk. So it was all negative you know, like when I looked in the mirror, I was negative about the way I looked. I was negative about, uh, you know, um, different aspects of, of my image. I was I was negative about the way my life was going, uh, my ability to hold in a job or a relationship, you know, my ability to be part of a loving family. And this, all those things were, you know, I was just, like it was, as I said, the self-talk was was constant. And the self-talk was always negative. And because of that, I, I was really, really struggling. That time you went to London in 2003 um, and had a, a back operation, but as a result of the, the, the gambling, you ultimately had to more or less run to the airport. So that kind of defeated the, the purpose. Yeah, uh, well... I had gone over a back operation. I, 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 was, I was gambling heavily at the time, uh, 2003. Um, 
I was staying in a local hotel uh, because I wasn't allowed to fly that night after the operation. I was flying the next morning, seven o'clock, and went to a bookies. I had five hundred pound in me in my pocket and twenty pound notes. First thing I did was change twenty pound into about ten or two fivers into the bookies. I was keeping fifteen pound, and the reason why I was keep, keeping fifteen pound was because that was as much the taxi was costing me to get back to the hotel the next morning, and. Uh, I started gambling and I gambled all my money and gambling for the first time I ever started to affect me physically. I started to shake uncontrollably in the bookies and uh, and I was wondering honestly how I would get out of the bookies but I knew I wasn't going to get out unless I spent the £15 and, and, and I gambled the £15 and I got up the next day and I had a jog I suppose eight and a half miles to the, to the airport to get the plane that I was on and and I thought things would change forever that day, but they didn't. Like, or got home and and an hour after I was home, I was gambling again, you know. And and again, that's what I talk about: fall stones and and uh, occasions where I thought uh, that's the end of it. You know, I, I won't be gambling anymore. And uh, and and yet that that wasn't the case. And that was the that was the pull that gambling and that was the grip that gambling had on me. When did things really hit the you know hit the, the roof or you know when did things change or force the change in your life? Uh, it'd been a, it'd sort of been a gradual build up and then uh, my last days gambling I had twenty thousand pound a horse to try and sort out all my issues and see when I talk about issues and I, like I talk about. Th- Finances, I mean, finances are only a small part of it. When I gambled, I tried to win back all that self-respect and self-esteem and integrity and relationships and friendships and family members and the things that have been collateral damage along the way. And uh, I suppose the thing about uh, about that was was a certain facade, bravado. Uh, there was trying to, you know, like being a compulsive gambler meant I was a compulsive liar and I was trying to keep up that along the way and, and I, I realised genuinely that something was going to break uh, and and luckily enough what broke was I broke and and, and I, I shared it with somebody and from that point on my, my life got better but it was pressure uh, it felt as if like my head was going to explode there was that there was that much pressure on because of delays and deceit and all those sort of things so um once i started to once i addressed them genuinely the freedom i got from it and you know when i talk about football and we talk about coming out coming out and of treatment and going back to play football the 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 freedom that I that I was able to play with them playing the best football in my life was fitter and stronger and faster than I had been at twenty five and I was just like I was I, I was really enjoying what I was doing then you know. I suppose looking back, um, all your gambling thing would probably would have been going into the bookies. Would it? There was probably no online gambling. Back then, I don't think. Yeah, there was towards the end of my gambling, but uh, the major. Nah, look at ninety-nine percent of my gambling was done uh, in the bookies, walking in. Yeah. You think that's a kind of a hidden um, epidemic or pandemic? I suppose really at the moment, this online gambling, especially during COVID. Yeah, look at. 
I kept my gambling pretty much hidden and I was walking into a bookies with cash. And uh, I think that's the big thing about gambling now is that, you know, it's people are doing it on the phone. People are doing, people can do it at uh, any time of day or night. They can gamble on literally anything. And the other thing about it is that the, um, the opportunity of recovery is very, very difficult whenever you're gambling online because it's so it's so easy to to have a bad day and just and you know download an app again and away you go and you know it's actually it's only a small difference but like if I, if I was going back to a bookies today I'd have to get money out I'd have to travel to the bookies I'd have to rake the docket I'd have to you know and there's lots of little little times during that that process where I can cut myself on or say to myself you know I don't I don't want this this is not for me and uh with with online gamblers, that opportunity sometimes is not there, you know. Um, you know, what's your feeling around the, the gambling companies, you know, sponsoring sports stars? I don't think they're really sponsoring many in the GA at the moment, but we say other sports. Um, well, it's not ideal because you know, a lot of our kids are looking up to certain sports stars and a lot of them seem to be targeted by uh uh the betting industry. Uh, look at the just have to look at the Premier League, the Championship uh, in England, and like it's it's dominated by uh, by by batting companies. I mean, I think there's 92 um, teams in in the league, and and I think there's something like 80, 80 of them have some sort of association with a with a with a bookies company, and like it's very dominant in the in the Premier League. You can see the jerseys and all that sort of thing. I took part in in a in a, a, a survey type thing for uh, Claire Bourne show and uh, during one Premier League game it was 291 times you know some sort of form of advertising was was in your face during that game and and I just found that astounding but that's how that's how much advertising has infiltrated sport and as I say when when you're looking at uh, your heroes and, and, and they are wearing that then it's very difficult for the next generation who are coming up do you have any struggles now with going back to that, or has it even crossed your mind? Uh, well, the first year was tough because I'd done the same thing for sixteen years, and I suppose then you just gradually get away from it, and it's just not the world I I I, I move in or the circles that I move in anymore. Uh, you know, my friends, family members, all that sort of thing. I mean, that's that's just not the world I'm living in. So. It gets easier through time, but look at I, I, I'm very conscious of it, and something that I work on every day, and and you know, the, I suppose the work that I that I do day to day means that I have the opportunity to remind myself exactly where I was. You know, who's the the toughest player to play against? I suppose to mark you and why? Uh, Seamus Moynan, uh, physically very strong. Deceptively quick and a great reader of the game. And he could hurt you going the other way. He was a very good footballer as well. Probably uh probably a lot of the time wasted at, at full back during his uh intercounty career, but I suppose he was he was very good in there too. But yeah, he was the toughest. If you had a choice, would you prefer to be marked by Justin McNulty or go up canvas for him? 
definitely be definitely be marked. Definitely be marked by him. Definitely be definitely be marked by him. I definitely get two seven two eight off and no bother. <laughs> Favorite player to have played with and why? Uh, I played with some brilliant players at, at inter-county level. Uh, Stevie, uh, Geezer, um, McGrain. I look at Mars and loads of, loads of lads who are just outstanding. But uh, John Mack, I played with a club. John McIntyre, I played with a club level and county level. I'm biased because when John had the ball, he always looked for me and he knew where to put it. And he knew made how to make me look good. So I always said John McIntyre. Do you think that the you know I suppose especially from from your playing days that do you think the intercounty scene has gone too too professional and enjoying this kind of gone out of it for players in a way? If I talk to players, they seem to think not. You know that that there's still that sense of enjoyment there, but um, but it definitely the commitment has become huge. And uh, the rigors and the focus and the media attention, the social media, put all those things together. I think you know it is. It's a it's a very very tough environment now for young lads. But I think that I think I do believe lads in the time media enjoyment is still there because you just want to be the best you can be at your sport and and. And we're probably getting more of a chance to to be that now than we ever have been, considering how well we're looked after, you know. Just before we finished up, I thought it was uh, quite interesting that I never knew you actually played you played football in America and Australia. Um, was it in, in Boston or New York you played? I played in uh, New York. Played with Donegal in New York, and it was that was the time where you could go out for weekend sanctions. So. Literally just weekends out and weekend weekend out and weekend home and we uh, weekend back out again. So, and us uh, Australia, um, you were so committed to to football. You actually played during your 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 um honeymoon. Uh, I had two mates of mine, uh, McNulty, Kieran Mohan, two boys from Arma. They had started up, um, or certainly at that time. Uh, they were over um, a team in Melbourne called Wolf Tones and they had asked me for years will I, will I go so I made the mistake of telling them that I was going to Australia on my honeymoon and they managed to convince me to uh, try and convince uh, my wife to uh, be a good idea for me to play in a tournament in Gosford up there so uh, actually, you know what? We we actually had a ball. Uh, we actually won the tournament, and things went wild for for us. And uh, we had a great other time. We had a, we had we spent one night with boys, which was more than enough. And uh, and we were able to go on and see all the sites and different things like that. But uh, you know, just a, a brilliant time. And, and look, we've been very lucky. You know, uh, we through the GA being able to see the world and, and I never thought a young fella from Crossman Land that was ever going to happen but it has had so many it's had so many positives for me and uh, and the very fact that she let me do that on, on the honeymoon was was it stood me in good stead let's just say that <laughs> look we'll, we'll finish it up but just before we go uh, what advice would you or 
guidance would you give people who are going through you know a difficult time at the moment perhaps addicted to gambling um because especially i think a big thing with lads is pride what advice would you give to, to people in, in that situation yeah just forget about the pride um just share it with somebody and ask for some help uh there's lots of different avenues for help uh if you're not happy speaking to a family member speak to your gp coach teacher um Samaritans, Lifeline, Gamblers Anonymous, <clears throat> whatever that, whatever your issue is, just once you share it with somebody, it'll never be, it'll never be that issue again. So uh, that'll be my advice, and 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 don't wait for tomorrow because we always put off tomorrow because it won't hurt as much tomorrow as it did today. So there's a window of opportunity for you. So just once you've shared it with somebody, then it's as I say, it's never going to be the same again. And don't feel you're on your own. You know, I thought I was the only person going through what I was going through and I went into a treatment centre and I realised there was 90 other people going through uh, certainly a similar situation than I was so uh, just share it with somebody and and, and seek the help um, and look if anybody contacts contacts you Jamie feel free to uh, to put them on to me no problem Perfect no I, I definitely will I, I appreciate that um, uh, just so people know um, what are you actually up to at the moment what do you do uh, job wise well, my job, my full-time job is I work with a foundation called Sport and Chance, which is set up by a guy called Tony Adams uh, around 1999-2000. Found himself in a bit of bother, got some help, and he realised there was very little help out there for uh, sports people, which was specific to sports people. And uh, and he set up a foundation, so that involves, the, they've got a treatment centre over in a place called Lip Hook and in Southampton and, and I do a lot of our education stuff so uh, pick up the pieces a lot of the pieces in Ireland obviously because I'm the only representative over here but also uh, do a lot with uh, youth teams under 18s under 23s in, uh, in in England as well we don't just do soccer as well which which we did uh, predominantly for a long time uh, we do uh, like we look after darts players uh, tennis players jockeys uh, rugby league players also, uh, rugby union players. So, yeah, it's 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 very busy right now. Very busy. Perfect, perfect. Look, I, I won't ask any more questions on that because we, <laughs> we can go down that and another rabbit hole. Look, Christine, I I appreciate it for taking time out and coming on the interview podcast because I know you've uh, you've a lot on at the moment. No problem at all, Jamie. Pleasure. Enjoyed it. I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Oshin. What can I say? Um, extremely honest, open. And I think we get a, a brilliant insight into his career, um, into the mindset of Cross Midland Rangers, and um, you know, into his his addiction and how he he's overcome that. Now he's he's helping people who are in similar situations. Uh, look, we really appreciate again uh, Oshin taking time out, um, because I know you you have a very very busy schedule to come on Inside View podcast and look best look with everything going forward. That is all from us on this week's podcast. Please do get in contact with the show if you'd like to contribute in some way possible. Um, you can contact us through uh, email as info on the ball team Over on Instagram, you'll find us at underscore on the ball team building. Over on Facebook, it's on the ball team building. Over on Twitter, it's at we're on the ball two. That's a digit two. We're also on LinkedIn. Um, we have a page there. It's on the ball team building. And you'll find us too on TikTok. It's on the ball team building. Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in again next week when we have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe 
And remember, cred on a fan. Talk to you all soon, and thank you all for listening.